0: Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco, and drink. I'm Steve Ryder in the Lion's Den. Special thanks to Derek and Susan Fulmer for letting us hole up here. And we are taping in front of a live studio audience. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <Taping>. <laughs> That's such an old term taping.
0: Taping to a flashcard on my Zoom <laughs> H6. And we are here with Michael and Catherine Redmond relatively new to the holy smokes community but i have known them for five years i met them at a heaven and business conference in redding california and we sat at the same table and i instantly fell in love with them and so they were here in town for some business and seeing friends and i was like we need to talk because you guys have a book coming out
2: yes we the do. day that we release yes. this
1: Cinco de Mayo, baby. go to
2: amazon.com and look up <laughs> fulfilled the
1: book.com and no.
2: purchase the kindle version please <laughs> Yes, I'm, I'm, okay, now this, as, this. As, as the producer
0: of the audiobook, I absolutely love the book. You have to admit you're kind of biased. No, I, I'm not biased because you're a client. I'm biased because it's good content. And I've told you this before. Your podcast, Hubble Village, you guys have been clients since very early on, shortly after you guys launched. I took over the production and now my yeah. team handles that. Yep. I've told you this a couple of times. I would listen to your podcast even if I wasn't editing it or producing it. I really would. Thank you. One, because you guys are covering so much of what I'm dealing with as a small business owner trying to develop a small business, teaching me a lot of things that I don't know. We'll get into that. Yes, sir. But before we do.
2: Yes, sir. What you smoking? We practiced this before and I just. don't Daniel Marshall, red Red label. Daniel Marshall, red label. Daniel Marshall, red label. We don't have the black label. label yet.
1: But when we have the black label, we'll be very happy. We're told. Yeah. Oh, the red label, but the Red is a, Label is lovely. By the way, this
2: is a very lovely cigar. Yeah, it is. I really it's like really it. It's really nice. Yeah. It's got a nice... I don't know what the aftertaste is when I leave here tonight. I always kind of judge <laughs> a cigar on the aftertaste. But the foretaste is lovely.
0: So you guys are in Chico, California. Yes. yes. You have a marketing company. We do. Yes. 18 years in now. And you guys are coaching small businesses to create passion provision companies. Yes. Where did that come from and what is passion provision?
1: How does one even begin? I love this subject. I love this subject.
2: Okay, so why don't you start with defining it? So, anybody who's listening knows, we're business partners and ha- married. Married. Twenty 20- Not brother and sister. Oh.
1: That's real important to clarify.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> Same last name, and not brother and sister.
2: Yeah, I couldn't do business with my sister.
1: N- nor could I with my brother. Yeah. But it's real 20- important to So, we've to been know.
2: married 27 years. We've been in business in this company 18 years. And... By the way, we own another company that we sell hay internationally to people who have pet rabbits. I just but want to throw we're not going
1: there. to talk about that. But that's a cool story. Okay, it okay. is a cool story. But we however, we
2: get to that we're to we talking about passion on. and provision. We're if right. you have
1: a rabbit, we're go entre- rabbitholehay.com, but never mind that.
2: <laughs> I'm an entrepreneur to the core. And I'm a
1: reluctant entrepreneur <laughs> to <are>. the
2: core. <laughs> but we've been doing this 18 years successfully, and we're proud of it, that we do it together and still like each other.
0: Yeah, you guys have a very special relationship. I mean, the dynamics between the two of you, it's... F- how if would you define our talk? relationship? It's hard for us to define it. You guys are fun.
1: Oh, fun. I love You're fun. it.
0: You're
2: like, That's I, one of our core
1: like values. That.
0: Whenever we talk over Zoom, I mean, one, I always point us to Zoom because I want to see your faces. love a ditto. I love, ditto. It's just, it's I love the faces.
1: By fun. the way, I don't think I've ever seen your hair.
2: Can <laughs> we well, solve that? He beanie. wasn't
1: wearing a beanie when we met him. Well, okay, but that was a long time ago. I that. haven't seen your hair in years. Okay. Passion and provision. We're going to define that. He's not. (laughs) He's not. We're going to define him. So, so there's a couple of things I just want to say up front. One of the things is that we know statistically that 80% of small businesses fail within five years of starting. And we just flat out believe that is a tragedy. And we're trying to figure out how do we help solve that? So they fail for a number of reasons. Most small business owners start with, I've got this great idea or I'm working for a company and I know how to make this widget better than my owner does and doggone it, why is he paying me? Why don't I just go out on my own? I don't want to make money for the guy who's doing this. I just want to do it on my own. And they go out on their own and that's great because that means there's passion. They love what they do. But many, many, many discover that as it turns out, they don't know how to run a business because a business involves more than I love what I do. It involves... Like, I have to know how to market and I have to know how to look at my financials, and that's real scary. And I have to know how to have systems and operations and replicate what I'm doing. And doggone it, if people don't like us or they hate where they work, they're not going to do good work for me. So, there's all these components of what it takes to run a small business. So, over the course of time, um, we have decided (laughs) that people, I think, believe that either you can have passion and you know, try and do something artsy and creative, but doggone it, you're never going to make a living. Cause your mom is always going to be like, baby, you can't make a living doing that. I know it's your passion, but you can't make a living as a juggler. As a juggler as a fine as a artist, juggler. whatever it is. Right. <laughs> I'm glad that's your passion, but there is no money there. Or they can go into business just to make a fat ton of money. It doesn't matter who, you know, they're just in business to make money. And we're like, okay, I think there's a better way. I believe Jesus made us, And created us for both contribution to live into our passion, as well as to make a living doing it. So how do we learn to build businesses that are full of passion, which we would say is not the fleeting, chasing your passion kind of thing. It's more what we would call, well, think of the passion of the Christ, the willingness to sacrifice for something that you believe in right? That's where passion really comes in. So if you say this is my passion, but you're not willing to sacrifice for it, we'd say, I don't think it's your passion. I think it's just a hobby. (laughs) So passion, but then also provision. And we're going to say, okay, by the way, we're going to say passion. We're not saying you have to love what you're doing 100% of the time, because nobody does. But if you can do something that you're gifted and skilled and talented to do 51% or more of the time you're probably living in passion. Provision is you're actually going to make a living doing it, and the people that come along to work with you can make a living and not just scrape by, but actually be able to build for the dreams of the future. So that's my short definition of passion and provision.
0: Now, Michael, this came out of really the story of your dad and your grandfather.
2: Mm -hmm. So my father, well, my grandfather, who's my biggest hero in life, who just went to be with Jesus last year, 14 months ago at 98 years old. Grandma went about 14 months before. They'd been married 76 years. It was oh. epic and beautiful. They were best friends. Yeah.
1: And they both died at home.
2: Yeah, they had several dreams. Grandpa was a bus diver for uh, Greyhound. And they both grew up in Western Oregon in the De- Great Depression. And then They were in the logging industry. And Grandpa loved driving loved cars and he went away to war and he came back and grandma said, before you go, we need a house. So they bought a shanty in in Western Oregon, little hole in the wall. We have a photograph of and left my grandmother with my mom who was just been born. Grandpa was in the bay at San Francisco Bay on the boat, getting ready to sail out into the Pacific and grandma gave birth. And so the story that he didn't tell for a long time is he went AWOL, to go see the baby. I can tell that even more now because he's gone. <laughs> he,
1: would he was a little embarrassed about
2: that. it, but he went to see grandma. And then as soon as he saw grandma and the baby, he turned right around and went back to his ship. And his punishment as they headed out into the Pacific was to work in the laundry. Funny thing about the laundry, you never made any money on the boat except for laundry because all the guys were had to pay the guy in the laundry to do their laundry. So grandpa made all this money on top of his paycheck from the Navy and got to send it home. And so a little weird thing. So he went out, punishment
1: became his blessing.
2: It was really funny. So, but he didn't, I didn't know this until I was like 40. They just didn't. So anyway, grandpa came back and he said he was offered a job in the logging industry, driving truck and being kind of the lead. And there was this thing called a pension that was brand new in America. And there was this company that would allow him to drive a bus and get a pension and take care of his family and at Greyhound and so what he did was he lived what everybody else would consider a really meager non-impressive life but every neighbor that they ever had they would show up and help out at 80 years old he helped the guy across the street move in and at the funeral he told that story five times that guy and they lived a life that was honorable and loving they helped raise my sister and I just poured into our life and spent a lot of time with us
1: and he loved his job and he loved his job he He loved his job he loved
2: work my dad on the other hand became addicted to crack at 52. Hmm. he was a leader in the community he was a businessman he was an alcoholic he always had dreams that he never figured out he could live into he was the worship pastor at our church that i grew up in so i had a father who he and mom introduced us to jesus and took us to church but he didn't know how to find joy in life. He always felt like life had been shortened and he never could figure out how to take the risks or do anything. So he just kind of short-circuited and kind of never found joy in work. And it really goes back to a moment when I was in fifth grade and I was really kind of, there was a natural sense in which work isn't bad, but it was something that was like I thought it needed to have purpose and meaning even at fifth grade. And I didn't understand this suck it up and just live it because this is life. I just heard a
0: story you tell for the first time on the podcast that released this week or last week of a neighbor asking you to mow the lawn. Oh you and- heard Oh, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So that's kinda of, it kind of all came around. So my neighbor said, Will you mow the lawn? Now you have to understand, entrepreneurial I started my own lawn business about three years later but I didn't want to mow this guy's lawn. He was a jerk. And I didn't... (laughs) I I believe you should be able to pick your customers. Within a certain measure of being, you shouldn't have to work for people who aren't nice. And he wasn't nice. And he said, will you mow the lawn? And I said, no, I don't want to. And I had enough money. I didn't need it. And he got mad and he went to my parents and told them that I had refused to mow his lawn. And so my dad and I got in a fight, like we usually got in an argument over something. And it was usually around his pain. And he told me that work was, he basically was giving me that lesson, that pep talk that you might give your son or daughter, that this is the way life works. And you don't understand how life works. And when you grow up, you'll understand it. But work is not meant to be fulfilling. Work is just something you do to put food on the table. And basically you have to deal with the fact that it's going to suck. And I remember just going, I didn't understand it, but it was incredibly painful. And what I grew up with was with a dad who unfortunately sent himself into a spiral because he didn't know how to find peace with God and he didn't know how to find the good works that were set before him. Mm -hmm. And it was tragic. And my dad was always an entrepreneur. He was always trying to make the big buck and do the big things. And he he was a phenomenal leader. He was like a Pied Piper. People who hated him would follow him. It was crazy. I learned tons from my dad. So I don't want to like, it wasn't all bad, but there was just a lot of pain And Grandpa was just, when we would go on bus trips when I was a kid, and I would sit two or three seats behind Grandpa, and we would go between Redding, California, and Grants Pass or Klamath Falls, Oregon, if any of the listeners know that. And I'd watch him greet people. And we'd stop in little towns like Weed and stop at the old train station. (laughs) And you'd see these two or three little old ladies and some guy get on a Greyhound bus. And he was so kind to them and so friendly, and he was always... Like this is my grandson, and you know the suitcase was as big as I was, and I got to help put it on the bus. and I just saw a way of joy from a man who is, in essence a blue collar guy who did it. My dad's broke and has no relationship with the family, and he goes out of his way to sabotage it. My grandfather died at 98 with enough money in their own home that they owned, and he they never wanted financially, never. And I'm the executor of the state. And now I get to divvy up this cash to his kids. And the world says what my grandfather did is impossible. And what my dad's path was is actually how you're going to get rich and you're going to be happy. And as we got older and processed it through, we realized that, you know, without going into it at this minute, scripture doesn't paint that picture. Jesus doesn't paint that picture. It doesn't. And when you look at Scripture, and you look at the call of Christ, and you see things like Matthew 28, make disciples of all nature, teaching them to obey my commandments, and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I I grew up calling it the Holy Ghost. I loved the Holy Ghost, and I still love the Holy Ghost. And you see John 10.10, where it's, he came so that he could defeat the enemy, and we could have life to the fullest which really, kind of secretly, Passion Provision is based on John 10.10. And our book that we wrote is like, we really prayed for years, and we felt like the Lord said, I don't want a lot of Christianese. I don't want biblical stuff in it. I want you to teach people about how to walk with Christ without throwing in all the extra Bible stuff right now, and then lead them along the path and teach them to obey my commandments, and then share the good news with them when it's appropriate. And so you've got that. And then you've got 1 Corinthians 12 that says we're all parts of the body of Christ and we're all gifted to have these gifts. And then there's this thing thrown in throughout the New Testament about good works prepared for us. And that we have these good works set up before us and, and he made them for us. And then the desires of our heart, the scripture doesn't say that we're going to have a bunch of dreams and he's going to answer them. The scripture, I believe, says that he puts those good desires in our heart. The dreams of our heart come from him. So when you're delighting in him, you've got this package where you're chasing and becoming and teaching other people about the good news. You're living life to the fullest and you have these good works and you're gifted in this special way to walk within the body of Christ and you understand that and then God calls some people to start businesses and everybody should be walking in this place where the desires of the heart, the gifts, talents, and skills God has given us through the hardships, the pain, the delight, the good news, gets to come out. And that's a passion and provision company, really, to the fullest. And all of a sudden, it's like, you not only get to walk out your path, but as a business leader, as a business founder, you get to actually take on that responsibility to create that for others also. Because if you don't, who's going to? And then it leads to not only businesses failing, but 75% of the American population, based on Gallup, is disengaged at work. They're sleepwalking through the day, they say. That's a crime. That means that the enemy's winning and he gets to take everybody and make them think that work sucks and that I just have to work to the weekend. And what if you got to do everything that God gave you and purposeful at work and you actually got paid for it? And I think that's kind of... Like if we had an entrepreneurial industry before the fall, I think that's what, what it'd be like. I've heard you describe...
0: Many times on the podcast, and you even talk about it in the book, the difference between labor and toil. And I love the way in which you guys talk about that.
1: So since he's been talking for about 10 minutes, and he's so good, I'm going to just dive in. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's my turn. I don't know. So labor and toil. We're not competitive at all, by the way. Not even. So yeah, we talk about labor and toil without using biblical references, but essentially you go back to the garden and we would say that work was part of what God set up in the garden, right? So he creates Adam, and he says his first job was to name the animals. So Adam gets about the work of naming the animals. So this concept that work is evil, I think actually is a curse concept, because ultimately you've got work in the garden, and that's all good, and it's all righteous and holy, and then... The fall happens and essentially the curse is toil you will till the soil and it will not yield for you right that's genesis 3 you will work and it will be not rewarding it will be painful and agonizing and i really believe and i think we believe that part of what jesus did was he came to restore what was in the garden so What does it look like to move from the sense of toil where what you're doing doesn't yield anything to this place of labor where at the end of the day you're exhausted, but you know that what you did meant something. And ultimately, we believe that people are created to have labor, not toil. 74% of disengaged Americans, that's toil. They're sleepwalking through their day to get to the weekend where they can actually enjoy life. But what does it look like to actually have your work be part of that enjoyment of life?
2: Part of that redemptive Part story. of that
1: redemptive stuff, all of it. So that's really the concept of passion and provision is what does it look like to move from toil to labor? And I think sometimes people start companies and it starts out as labor, but it becomes toil. Mm. because of whatever is not working, whatever they don't know, whatever that deficit is, whether it's a cash deficit or whether it's a knowledge deficit, it becomes toil where like you just dread crossing the threshold of work on a Monday morning. And that happens not just to employees, but it happens to business owners. I mean, we experienced that.
0: You experienced that well, we in have... a job out in Silicon <laughs> Valley and then when well, you, when yeah. Michael was a youth pastor here. Well, in- Yes, we've,
1: experience, yeah, we've yeah. experienced provision without passion, <laughs> and that is super unfun, by the way. Like, you can have a ton of cash flow and hate what you're doing and who you're doing it with, and that's just not any fun, and we've been there, and you can have all kinds of passion but no money, and that is also equally unfun, right? Yeah. So, to try and figure out how to combine those two is really what it means to move from toil to labor, and to begin to restore that sense of there are God given things that we are intended to do. What does it look like when we step into them and we do them? That's fulfillment. That's joy. That's what Jesus called us to. It doesn't always come overnight. Oh, it right? never, it I mean, rarely we all know comes that if overnight. we've been at it a
2: while. I heard a great sermon talking about Genesis and the garden. And if you do basic math and you kind of look at, you estimate how many animals there were before the fall. (laughs) You know, I mean, who knows, really. It probably took 24 to 28 years for him to name all the animals. And there's this weird place where God says in this text, okay, he's lonely. Now name the animals. And then it says there was no one found for him as a suitable helper. And I love the angle that this one pastor gave that said, basically, he goes, look at what God did there. If this is really the way it laid out, he put in a situation where he took Adam through a series of events to feel the pain of the loneliness, to kind of accentuate this need so that when he provided an answer to it, he really understood more about how significant it was. And... Unfortunately, getting to Passion Provision doesn't happen overnight. It'd be wonderful if it did. It'd be wonderful if you could come up with a business idea and and knock it out of the park right off the bat. But even knocking it out of the park sometimes can be painful. And you start to learn this. Which
0: it has been for you guys.
2: Yeah, it's gone through its seasons. We grew 400% in 12, 18 months, Mm -hmm. 10 years ago. 400% in 18 months.
1: Yeah, just ask us sometime offline.
2: uh, That grimace right there, it was...
1: It was agony. It was the dream, right?
2: It was the dream. Like, oh, we're going to kill it. It was like a Silicon Valley dream. Oh, yeah, we're going to kill it. It's going to be awesome. It was all around...
1: By the way, it was all around toenail fungus.
2: It was So you got to love...
1: This is an incredible dinner conversation. Let's talk to you about the technology that treats toenail fungus. And how we grew our business 400%.
0: With a client that was <laughs> With talking about
1: multiple. Like we had, oh yeah, we that, had that probably niche, 21. Yeah. yeah, in that niche, we had 21 clients across the country. One learned in London. A ton, one in London. It was amazing. We and kind of the small horrible.
2: business
1: thing. It was horrible. And we hated it. Because we, we grew too fast, we hired wrong. We just hired. We just were like, we just need people. And it turned out those people didn't fit us. We didn't fit them. They thought we sucked. We thought they sucked. It was a good time. We loved. Super good time.
2: We were fortunate when we were growing up to have great <laughs> leaders and they are believers. From my Boy Scout master, who was a strong believer, who taught me lots, to her dad, who poured into her and then our college pastor. But one of the things that happened that happens a lot in companies is the company outgrew our ability to lead. It it outgrew our maturity. Absolutely. It outgrew our leadership skills.
1: We were not up to the task of what 400% growth meant. We were reduced to the nubs like, and it turns out not only do your employees suck, you suck as leaders. Excellent. You know, you're trying to manage somebody and suddenly what comes back at you is, Oh no.
2: So when we say we grew up 400%, oh, that's terrible. Th- if we back up the story a little bit, it's more impressive if we delete certain things. Because <laughs> in two years, two and a half years, we grew 200%. So in two years, we doubled the size of the company. But in the middle of that, we went up to 400%, and then the company crashed and fell and just was split in two. Yeah. And so we went 400% up, and then the company fell and split, failed 50%. So then we decided as marketing people, we would rephrase it, that we grew 200% in two years. But we were, the real answer we amazing. was, we it was incredible. sucked and we couldn't handle holding on to 400% growth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we had to grow. And then God started teaching us a whole new series of lessons. A whole new level of mentors, a whole new level of leadership. And we realized that...
0: Like what? Like who? Oh. What areas were you growing? Who was speaking into your life?
2: We loved Jim Dismore. Jim Dismore was one of them. Jen.
1: So, <laughs> so Jim was the ninth employee at Walmart back okay. in Bentonville, Arkansas, and he helped grow the company from, you know, like the three stores that they had when he joined the company to the over
2: 800,
1: 800 stores. And
2: they nicknamed him the hatchet man. Yeah. Because he was raised in a pretty poor environment, but he was raised with the Lord and then he got away and he got really wealthy and anytime a walmart store was underperforming, he came in and fixed it first thing he did was sam would say fix this place and the first thing was fire the manager and they threw him out and then he would turn the stores around but he was brutal people were terrified of him and then he had a moment where his life started falling apart on him and god said okay look you forgot me and he called him out of walmart and he was basically a son to Sam and Sam disowned him. Yeah. Oh my God. It totally blacklisted him. And he went off and started another company in the music industry. You're in the music industry, right? You in remember Ultimate Stands? Now, In the 80s and 90s, they were the premier stand for music stands, keyboard stands, anything like that. You could go to, yeah. you remember that? Yeah. You well, know, that was Jim. Jim started that company. They were everywhere, all over the place. And he did a really good job at that, but he kept going, I'm going to do it the way the Lord wants me to. Ooh. And that company finally came to an end when the Chinese manufacturing and everything changed and they just couldn't compete. There was all kinds of fake stuff. And so he finally sold the company and moved on. And now he's in his early nineties and he's out in Arkansas where he came from. And all Can that. we just got to call like, Collins. He ran ultimate out of Fort Collins. He did. Yeah. We, we
1: literally had a phone call from him like 3 months ago. Okay, I'm starting this new thing and I want you guys to do my website. <laughs> 90s. And we never heard 90s. from him again. We're like, "You are that really, is your... a dude.
2: That is a dude <laughs> <Yeah>. I like." <laughs> like he's I like. he's, he's so like, "Now so that Toys R Us is gone, there's a void in the market for toys. So, we're, we're like, going to create yeah. a toy store online." I don't know if they will ever do it or not, <laughs> so but he came alongside us and said, "I'm going to pour into you." And How would you meet him? A friend of ours. A friend of ours, Gil Wesley. Gil was part of another group of folks that was kind of small and intimate like this, around the country of folks. They were always nicknamed kind of the Christian mafia.
1: They do do all the work for the National Prayer Breakfast and all of that work and run an organization out of DC.
2: Yeah, And And Gil knew him, Gil knew all these people and he introduced us and said, I mean, yeah, Jim was just amazing and he poured into us and he taught us a lot and he encouraged us a lot. And the biggest gift I think any leader can give to anybody they're mentoring or pouring into or any friends that they have is just to say, I love you and I believe in you Ooh. and you may need to grow. You probably do because you're not like Jesus yet. So there's kind of that gap and you may think your stuff doesn't stink and you may have all this success in the world, but I believe that you can be better. I believe that you have it in you to be better than you are. As a person, as a leader, as a follower of Christ, and as a business person. And I want to do what I can to support you and encourage you to do that. Mm-hmm. And when you have, I mean, when you're sitting here in a room like we're sitting right now, and you're pouring out your stuff and your pain and your stock, and no matter how good it is at the office or in life, and you're like, but I hit a wall, which we all do. Good leadership development says that we go through seven to 12 transitions in our life as leaders. And a transition means a couple of things. One, what we're doing now isn't going to take us into the next place that God has for us. So we've got to learn new things. We've got to add new skills, new maturity. We've got to grow and change. There's a lot of stuff we get to take with us, but we can't keep doing the same thing. And second, it's just like Moses. Moses. And just like the Israelites, you don't learn what you have to learn. You have to go around the mountain again. And I don't want to go around Mount Horeb again. So I want to grow. And one of the brothers that we have in business that we have just recently started to build a relationship with is Patrick Lincioni. You guys know him? He's written several books mm-hmm. on leadership. He wrote the five disciplines or the five dysfunctions of a leadership team. And he's a strong believer, strong Catholic man. We asked him one day when we were talking. I said, okay, you became pretty famous. New York Times bestseller. You have 13 books. I said, how do you stay humble? How do you not think that you're all that in a bag of chips? Because everybody says you are. And he said, first, I go to Mass every day. I love my Protestant upbringing, and I love being an evangelical, and I love being a charismatic evangelical. I love that. And I was raised in a place where we got the Father and the Son, but we didn't have the Holy Spirit. And I loved it when I figured out what the Holy Spirit how much He wanted to be involved in our lives. Mm -hmm. But I love some of the richness of the traditions of the Catholic faith and the fact that you could go, no matter what city you're in in the world, you could go to Mass every day and fellowship in a place of other believers and you could have that kind of easy access to it. And there's none of us are perfect in any of our faith streams. Yeah. He said, I do that every day. And then he says I spend time and he uses the rosary, but he prays every day. He's like, I gotta remember who Jesus is and what my role is, and in that I get to make sure that I keep myself in right perspective. Because another friend of ours says, I don't work with people whose shadows aren't long. Mm. And Roy says this. He says, you can grow a company beyond the length of your shadow, but it will shrink back to the length of your shadow.
0: Ooh. Ooh. Say that
2: again. You can grow a company beyond the length of your shadow, but it will shrink back to the length of your shadow. And that sits with us. We love leaders. We love other leaders, and we love the leaders that have poured into us, and we just want to keep going and going you know, there's 80 million people in the millennial generation. They're as diverse as any other generation has ever been, and they get one rap. You know, they kind of like get all lumped together. And they're diverse people just like anything else. But there's so many leaders there that desperately need our help. They need what we have all been the Any of us that have been successful in business or in leadership, and any correct me if I'm wrong, folks, I mean... <laughs>
1: You don't have a mic, but correct us anyway. But seriously, have you
2: you ever not been the beneficiary of other leaders who've believed in you and poured into you? I mean, you could probably list dozens of people that you're grateful for for the roads you've traveled and the success you've had in the kingdom. And it would be a crime if these 80 million young people and, and the generation behind them didn't get that from us truth and but i want to believe in them and we they need us to believe and they want us to believe in them and they want us to pour into them and they crave it and i think a lot of us write them off
0: michael we've heard your story very short a little bit about it catherine Mm. you are born and lived a big chunk of your life your early years
1: yes i was seven anyway seven yep In Northern England, yeah, you can tell by the accent. Yeah, so I grew up in Northern England until I was seven. So my parents split up when I was seven. My dad moved to the States, and we ended up with my dad, which is unusual, but um, it happened. And uh, my mom still lives in York in the north of England, and we still visit her. But we left the UK when I was seven. I didn't see her again until I was 20. So Mm. I spent a great deal of time losing the British accent because I was really shy and I really didn't like being teased. Mm. So Michael says I have schizophrenic accent disorder. <laughs> also says I'm Let's married. I'm married. Well, you could, but you know I would, well no, because I sound really fake when I say it. it's not. It feels awkward. <laughs> but yeah, uh, you get me around anyone with an English accent, and I'm completely done for, just instantaneously.
2: She'll walk into my office on any given day,
1: having talked to my mom,
2: and I know she's done. talked to mom. Yeah, so... Totally. Man, it's it's like, true. oh, who did you talk to? It was yeah. either a mom or a lawyer or somebody, somebody over Somebody.
1: Somebody with an accent. Anyway, so yeah, we came to the States when I was seven. and Where'd and, you guys settle? So we moved initially to Long Beach. And um, my dad had... He had sort of done this bizarre path where he was a psych nurse and had all this nurse training in the UK, but was never actually certified. Because <laughs> it's a different system. So he, we came to the States. He was in Long Beach. He ended up with his nurse's certification. Then we ended up in San Diego for a couple of years and in sixth grade moved to Chico. So first moved to, so imagine British Northern England kid. We moved to Southern California, which isn't so bad. You know, that's okay. Weather wise, it's tolerable. And then suddenly we moved to Chico in July and I wake up and it's 115 degrees outside. And I say to my father, have you moved us to hell? <laughs> yeah, I mean, literally, I was like, what is happening? But went through junior high, high school, college in Chico, and just really good. And then I ended up going through Chico State, taking a year off, working in a full-time capacity as a, in a doctor's office, but then interning for our college ministry. So I did that, and then I went to seminary. So I have a Master's of Divinity in New Testament Theology, From Talbot which is part of Biola University in Southern California and I thought my path was full-time ministry so when I finished school Michael and I had just gotten married and we lived in the Bay Area and in the San Mateo just south of San Francisco so we did that and ended up moving to Colorado Springs right here where we currently are and taking over our youth ministry in a church in Colorado Springs And I believed that our course was full-time ministry, but through a series of events, (laughs) it changed. (laughs) So we had- talk a little bit
0: about that because you guys were following a dynamic leader.
1: Dynamic, charismatic, powerful leader. We moved, (laughs) yeah, he was moving up and we were in the Christian Missionary Alliance. He was moving up in the denomination, but ultimately about two and a half years into being in Colorado Springs, we discovered that everything we knew about him was a lie.
2: We ministered with him in California. Yeah, we had, And then God called us all out here.
1: Yeah, and we had been through a season with him where he had had four stage Hodgkin's disease. We thought he was going to die. We were godparents to his four kids. But it turned out it was all a lie and he God had testified. Yeah, miraculous <laughs> healing of Hodgkin's disease. I mean, it was it was nasty and he had testified at the national level, lost his license. I mean, like wow. they rewrote CMA policy because of this guy. Wow. So this was late 90s. And we weren't, like, Michael wasn't even, I think Michael was just about 30 when it all happened. So we ended up, he kind of obviously tanked out as progressive revelation came out that everything we knew about him was a lie. The memories we had of him were, like, there's something about being tied to a pathological liar where you end up having shared memories with them that turn out actually not to be true. So you've lived memories with them, and then you discover they're not even real. Think about that. Right? Right. All the stories all he's painted Think of his about past. your friends or anything,
2: and all these things they've told you about your past, and you laugh about things, and you joke about things, and and you even go, "Oh, you this have is inside like that story jokes in about
1: those things," and it turns out that they never actually even happened, right? <sighs> so, he ultimately, there was a, it was a long saga. He lived with us for a bit. He tried to commit suicide in our basement. We, were, I mean, it was just a nasty. It's the kind of stuff that you read about in the annals of agonizing youth ministry. You don't live. Any right? ministry. You just. You, just, any, you,
2: you don't think it's going to happen to you. Yeah.
1: It's not it going to happen nasty. to you.
2: So, you don't even know anybody who that happened to It
1: was to bad. You. And then he was replaced with another guy who turned out to also be a pathological liar. We lasted about eight weeks under him, and then he fired us, so it was a good time. We got out, which was a gift from Jesus, and moved back to our hometown with our... I mean, with for me, it was like with my tail between my legs. Like, we went out in the big, bad world, it kicked our ass, and we're home. Yeah. <laughs> Pardon my French. No. Like, yeah. I mean, it was bad, and ultimately... What did that do to you two? Well... It ended up with like three years of shower conversations before there was what we call shower piece. It jacked us up. Yeah. I can imagine. It did. That's not it like was saying, like,
2: I want to say how, what I really think, but I don't think that's appropriate. But mm-hmm. everybody's so, thinking it. Yeah. I mean, it's Yeah. Like, the first time I went. Was,
1: yeah. Yeah. The first time I went to actual counseling for this, I described the situation and the second guy, which was almost worse than the first guy because we had no relationship with the second guy. So that's like laying on the mat. When you're already down for the count and then having someone just come along and kick you in the gut. So I described the situation, and my counselor said to me after I described just the initial stuff, she said, And when was the second time he hit on you? I was like, What? What do you mean? Because the first time was he'd been with us three days, and he sat across the table from me and said, I like literally have never seen anyone as gifted in ministry as you, but I don't know about your husband. And I was so so tweaked by the first guy that I didn't even know what was happening. So clearly he had something for me. He really disliked Michael. We didn't last long. We got out and that was a gift. Put Michael back in school and I went to work for a software company because we had to pay the bills. So we found a friend who was working at a software company. I'm kind of a chameleon. I'm kind of a jack of all trades. You just put something in front of me that needs to be done and I can do it. I don't have a specialty. I'm a generalist, right? In a world of specialists, I wish I was a specialist, but I, I'm a generalist. I'm just good at a lot of different things. So she's, I say he, she's
2: a specialist at that.
1: <laughs> I'm a specialist <laughs> at being good at a lot of stuff. Special- she's pretty
2: much a badass. So I, she
1: just so I seriously kicks butt. I literally started in this company doing like responses to requests for proposals. And then I was like, this is all paperwork. I really hate this. And then I moved into being the implementation manager for large projects for a software company that did general ledger HR payroll software. So my clients were the golden gate bridge and Salt Lake city and just different clients that were implementing very large scale projects. But ultimately I was doing that to get us through him being done with school so that we could go back into full-time ministry. That was my idea. And I thought that was the plan. What were you going to
2: school for Mike? I think that was my plan too. Yeah. Beginning it was, we loved ministry.
1: Yeah. And Michael, even after all
2: that, well,
1: we love Jesus. There's several
2: different pieces and parts of this. And
1: we had learned early on, by the way. Remember my background, right? Huh. I had come from a broken marriage, and this is like a little piece, but it matters. So my mom divorced my dad and married the pastor of our church. Who left
2: his wife? And who left four his kids. wife and
1: four kids for the pastor? So I had learned long ago that. Jesus and people were not the same. Don't, mis- don't mistake. So what That's- does it look like not to throw the baby out with the bathwater when people betray you? Because people are stupid and they don't actually represent Jesus in the way that he intends. Mm. So how do I learn to separate that so that I can still chase Jesus even when people just crap out?
2: Well, and they it, do. I like the way you say it all the time. You've always said, one of the lessons we have is not to mistake God's people for God.
1: Yeah. yeah. Don't mistake God for his people because his people fail. But, That's why Jesus came as it turns out, right? But well, what was
2: core in this part that I think is important, it's always important for us, is we also didn't throw out God's people. No. Like we have multiple friends who've been in the ministry. There's this, well, you got a lot of leaders in Holy Smokes. There's a kind of a club if you've been in pastorate at all. If you've been in any kind of leadership in the church, you realize, you know.
1: We are the people who
2: have been betrayed club. I mean, it's a, it's a unique club. And there's a lot of stuff you do and you understand the stuff. and It's a large club. I always described it. And I think it's funny because we haven't been in vocational ministry for 20 years. But my pastor continues to remind me that, you know, no, you're still going to be in the club. Because when you're leading people and you're in vocational ministry, what people see is a drainage ditch between you and them. It's easy to jump. And what my perspective was from the other side was, no, that's the Grand Canyon. You just, like, it's really hard to dip into the life of somebody who's been in vocational ministry or, or led or pastored. And we have a lot of friends who got burned in the ministry and they stopped going to church. They just kind of went, I don't need God's people. Or they just didn't want to go back into that place because the pain was so severe. We were so blessed. Oh my gosh, gosh. we were so blessed. Because when we left Colorado and kind of sold our house in the south end of town on May 1st, 1997, rolled in without jobs, my mom had to co-sign for us to get a place to live in Chico. We
1: felt like such grown-ups.
2: And we had an (laughs) what Jenna was 18 months old? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, we had pretty much failed. (laughs) We would pretty much failed. But we went back to our home church where we had people who we had relationship with and they loved us. And our college pastor, who was now our friend, said, would you come be mentors in the college ministry? And he did this thing, and I'll describe it for people listening. He held one hand out like stop, with your hand up. And the other one, he beckoned us to him. And he said, I want you to heal and I want you to come serve. And we learned that healing in service was the Mm. best
1: thing for us to do. Yeah, I basically looked at him and said, you know what, if you can handle the messiness of whatever it is I'm going to bring, and I don't even know what that is, but I would rather heal while serving than try and take a period of healing without serving. So he gave us the grace to step in at whatever level we could, which turned out to be, I mean, it really wasn't that hard. And then we just you know we just spent 3 years healing and we would say it took 3 years to have shower peace.
2: explain shower peace.
1: So shower peace so is when you're not having the conversation with the person who betrayed you or whatever. You're no longer having that conversation in the shower.
2: You're no longer so captive to a person. You're no who... longer
1: yeah, you're no longer just Does having to sense? figure totally. out what to say. Totally.
2: Or if you want to if ream I had, them on a If regular I had basis. only
1: said this, like if I could just relive this moment, I would have been like no. But you know what? I don't get to relive that moment. And so it took, yeah, about three years to gain shower peace from that. So, which
2: means you spend three years, well, you spend the first part of the three years for us trying to figure out how you say out loud, Lord, I forgive them. <laughs> and then you list the things out loud that they did or you perceived they did to you. So you're very specific about your forgiveness. And then you spend the rest of whatever that three years was repeating it because your emotions don't fall in line right away. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden we realized we were both having showers alone without this cadre of people that hurt us and we were no longer captive to the pain. Ooh, that's good. Yeah. It was huge. Yeah. And we had really great people around us saying things like, you know, I love you. That sucked. You don't get to stay there. And we didn't run away from them. It's easy to run away from people who are telling you, you need to heal. And we didn't. Mm. And it was, there's this great leadership thing that we've been exposed to in training and stuff that probably many of you have done. And that is you build a timeline of your life. And the way we were taught, you use sticky notes with different colors. So, you know, one color is for all the great things. And, Another color is for like the hard things. And then you use like red dots for the really pivotal moments. Mm. And first of all, to be able to look at your life and see the scope that seems so big and kind of see the arc. And then the goal is to go, okay, now at each one of those moments where it was God at work. How is God shaping you, not just the gifts and talents that he gave you naturally, or when you became saved and those redemptive gifts you got, but how does he use the places where this person betrayed you, or this person took advantage of you when you were weak? And you can list the things, and you start to realize the power of God in the moments. So then you've got these gifts, and you've got these talents, and you've got these skills that you learned because of the different things you needed to figure out in life. And then the grace in that moment. And then all of a sudden God starts to go, now, we've been doing this for a couple of decades or more. Let me reveal a little bit more about how I want to use you. Mm. And how I shaped, how this life has shaped you so that you can see more of the good works that I have for you. And then you can bring this and you can sit with somebody and go, yeah, that was really effed up. And I'm sorry. And God wants to touch it. it's not God's fault. And I don't have all the answers. You want to go on the journey with me towards more healing? Mm -hmm. And the whole place of business is where the enemies, I think, had a huge ability to gain ground.
1: Well, it's interesting because, like, for me, that arc, even that timeline arc, was all about the sovereignty of God. So I was raised in a very conservative, you know, I can still... um, One of my mantras is the first Q&A of the Heidelberg Catechism. So it's not the Westminster Catechism, but the Heidelberg Catechism, because that's what I was taught. When you were how old? I learned it when I was five. So Sunday school in the UK, (laughs) we were learning the Heidelberg Catechism, which is the Q&A thing, right? (laughs) So the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism is, what is thine only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, I'm not my own but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, Mm -hmm. who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sin and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things, all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also enables me to live basically forever forever working for him i'm messing up the last part but this sovereignty was so deeply ingrained in me which is part of as i looked at the archive even the timeline stuff it's part of what helped me separate mm-hmm. people from god right like no matter what's happening no matter what's going on in my life everything must serve my salvation Right, everything that happens in my life, all things work together for good. Right, this is another way of saying all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. So everything in my life has to serve my salvation. So if this thing is happening and it's horrific, somehow it serves my salvation. It serves who He's calling me to be and how He's shaping me and molding me so that sovereignty. And I'm, you know, I will tell you it like when we made the decision that we were going into business when Michael made the decision that we were going into business, I was so mad because I wanted to go back into full-time ministry and I had done business. Like I worked in the software industry. I'm like, I did this. I did my time. And all I wanted to do was bug out. Yeah. So I spent four years arguing with Jesus about this. And then I buckled under and was like, okay, I guess it's business. I guess that's where you are calling us to walk.
0: How um, did half a bubble out come about. Oh my
1: gosh. Okay, we're driving down I-25 from Denver to Colorado Springs. About 7-8 <laughs> years after we left here, we came back to visit. We're driving down 25 and when we were considering leaving Colorado Springs, leaving ministry, going back to Chico to go home whatever, we had called our college pastor, the same one who did the come here, you know, the yeah. hand motion we described. Healing come. Yes, and I said to him, "Bob, this is what's going on, you know, this is disaster we're experiencing here. And he said, you have to get out of there. And I said, okay, well, we're thinking about putting Michael back in school because at this point I had my master's. Michael hadn't finished his undergrad. And it was one of the things we were being slammed for. So Bob, our mentor, said, well, Kath, your husband is a half a bubble out he is a half a bubble out. So if you want him to get the respect and the whatever that he deserves, because he's really bright, he probably just needs to finish his degree and get that out of the way.
2: Half a bubble out comes from?
1: So half a bubble out is if you've ever hung a picture on a wall and you have the level and it's just not quite level, It's the bubble in the middle is half out, right? So he was saying, your husband doesn't see the world the same way everybody sees the world. He was saying I
2: wasn't quite level. He's not quite level.
1: <laughs> so... Okay, so that was about five years previous, so we're driving down I-25 from Denver Airport to Colorado Springs to come visit, and we're talking about starting this company, and I'm like, I think it has to be called Half a Bubble Out. It's really hard to say, and it's super obnoxious, but I think that's what it has to be, and that's where the name came from. It's actually a description of his personality, and I just get grafted in by joy and choice because I think actually alone I'm quite level <laughs> but
2: <laughs> she is it's I think I'm really it's normal
1: boring. and I think without him I'd be super boring actually so
2: no you could <laughs> not okay yeah, that's not true that's so not true
1: I would have married a seminary professor or something like that but and been like there's got to be more to life than like following the academia which is what I wanted but never mind <laughs> so I that's where it came from because my husband is a half a bubble out
0: so how'd you guys get into marketing and where you guys are now?
2: Well, I thought we were going to stay in nonprofit. I really, especially coming from Colorado Springs, which is the land of non-church Christian ministries or non-congregational. It was parachurch back in the day. Yeah. I don't know if anybody uses that term anymore, but it was the land of parachurch ministries. And so I had lots to inspire me. I'm like, well, we'll go start our own thing. And then uh, one day, I'm with one of my college students that I was mentoring on a beautiful sunny day in Chico, California, driving by California State University, Chico, driving down Third Street, eastbound, and all of a sudden, God said, you're going to start a for-profit company. That had to be a paradigm shifter for you.
1: Well, and the question was, doing what, and who's going to buy it? That was it? really the first thing I said right? to God. <laughs> like, I'm like I what don't, do we know that anyone's going to actually buy? I always buy. believed that
2: I could do stuff early on, and then all of a sudden, all I had was this. Like, we're going to be in ministry to Restorrelli, some form, and he said, "Yeah, but I want you to start a company." So we started immediately. I'm like, "What are you talking about?" I really didn't believe we had any gifts for it. We didn't have anything to sell. I didn't realize that we'd been. Being trained for the last thirty some years to do what we were doing, and we had all these gifts and talents that were ready to be developed to the next level, and taken to into the, the next season, and so I studied. Yes, earlier what I studied, I studied communications, but I studied this thing called instructional design, mm. which is really a, a full blown thing in the United States, where you study adult education and performance improvement within business mostly. So adult education, how do adults learn and grow, and what does performance improvement look like in companies? And so it had to do with designing training and understanding that. And all that. And I'm like, okay, well, that aligns with ministry and stuff like that. And then it was, I've always been good at sales and people and stuff like that. So we started this marketing company where we did graphic design, and I had experience in a lot of that. And so we started in the spare bedroom, and then we call it the spare oom.
1: Started uh, in the spare oom. Uh, Through the wardrobe.
2: Yeah. And then we moved to the garage, converted the garage. And, you know, there was lots of twists and turns in the last 18 years. But the degree was helpful because a lot of my peers that got the degree went into, they designed curriculum for companies. And we were able to use it for marketing. And then we were so, we had been so poured into for so long for leadership development that we started doing marketing. Companies would show up at our front doorstep saying, we need more customers. And then we'd start unpacking it and helping them. And all of a sudden, over the years, we realized they were getting business consulting and they liked business consulting and they were getting leadership development and they liked it, but we weren't selling that in the beginning. So, well, and
1: ultimately they would come to us saying, we need a website or we need lead gen or we need something to grow our customer base. And what we would end up discovering is that there are some broken things in your company that until we solve those hmm. to market you would be a waste of dollars.
0: Like what kind of things were you identifying? Um, so
1: for example, we have this company that has a thousand employees up and down California. They're actually, a, they do social services. They do wraparound services in the mental health industry, essentially. And they had grown organically over like 40 years. But, and they came to the table and there's like five different divisions and they're all talking in acronyms and they're all doing different things and they all know what they're talking about. From the outside, we're like, we don't know who you are. So until we can actually tell a story that's cohesive about who you are and about why anyone cares, we can't create a website because we don't even know who you are. Yeah. So you think you know who you are, but if we put that content on a website, people are going to be confused. So we discovered that over and over and over again. People would come to us and they would end up saying, we need marketing. And we'd say, okay, but you have a, we would call it now. I don't think we called it then, but we would say, but your bucket's leaky. So we could make all these marketing promises, but your employees are miserable. So if your employees are miserable and they're not gonna fulfill those promises, then Mm. you're not gonna keep those customers, so you're wasting money. Mm. So how do we shore up your culture? How do we shore up your leadership so that you actually can pour into your people so that ultimately you can deliver what it is that you're promising? Because we talk about, when we're doing marketing with people, we talk about, there's a number of different models, but one of the ones that we learned a long time ago was, you need an overt benefit. Like, let's not be succinct, let's be overt. What is it that you're actually offering? And what is it you're solving? So the overt benefit. And then there's this thing called the reason to believe, which is why would I believe that you can deliver what it is you're promising? What's your evidence? You know What are your testimonials? What are the people you've solved this for? And then the significant difference just becomes why you over someone else? But if somebody comes in and they're making this promise but ultimately they don't have the structure underneath to deliver that promise, then that marketing is not going to succeed. And it's amazing how many companies will blame you as the marketing company Mm. for the marketing not succeeding when, as it turns out, your customer service sucks. So I can give you all the leads you could possibly ever handle but you can't handle them. Or you come saying, I need a thousand new customers, but you can only handle about 50 because you don't have the infrastructure to handle all of that. So how do we actually help you back up, think more holistically and solve these other issues that are happening in your business so that if we bring you the marketing leads, you have the culture and the structure and the management to actually handle all of that. And thus we realized most Small businesses and small business owners don't have that. They actually come into it with, I've got this great idea, I wanna do this, but they're not equipped to run a business. So how do we actually help them learn the minimum competency across multiple skill sets that they need to be successful running a business? Because they don't know how, and so,
0: which is where really the book. Which is has where the village birthed. and the book yeah. and
1: all of that came from. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So talk a little bit about the book.
1: So the book the title of the book is fulfilled. And we would say that is based on a John ten ten. I came to give life to the fullest, even though there's no biblical references in the book. That's really what the basis is. And the subtitle, the stuff at the bottom, says the passion and provision strategy for building a business with profit, purpose, and legacy. So we created a model. We have no illusion it is the model. There are many models. But the thing is, what we know in adult development is people need to see a way before they can find their way. So we've created a way. And our way has six major components of business with vision in the center, so we're helping people identify who am I? What am I doing? Why am I doing it? And why does anyone care? <laughs> right? So that why that vision piece. And then we talk about leadership. And we go into essentially the fact that if you're going to be a good leader, you have to deal with both your inner game and your outer game. So the inner game is the personal development side of leadership where you're really assessing what's happening inside of me that causes me to react that way to that thing and how do I grow, There's, essentially. It's
2: a good systematic model that we've found to yeah. help lengthen your shadow.
1: Yeah, to lengthen your shadow. So inner and outer game of leadership. And then we talk about management and operations. So how do you deal with systems? How do you begin to build systems? And literally, like, guys, we are talking 101, so if you've been in business a super long time and you have all this stuff, you're going to be like, oh yeah, that's real basic. But we're aiming at people who actually, they don't actually know this stuff. Or it's me. Right?
0: That's me. Right. Yeah. So on, on this journey from employee to solopreneur to now having a team. Yeah. And I'm going through the course that you guys have developed. Yep. And that vision part was huge for me because it's stuff that I had heard before, but I had never yeah. gone through and actually, you know, identified and really started to write out my core values.
2: So what I hear you saying is that there is, was for you because you've been listening to us for a long time. Yes. There is a difference between hearing it, recognizing the truth in it and actually applying it.
0: Yeah. Actually putting down the book and doing the exercises. Usually I'll like listen to a book and I'm off doing whatever, which is
2: like all of us. We read a a book while I'm
0: in bed and I'm like, yeah, I'll do this exercise later. I never get around to it.
2: So one of the things that's true about a lot of leaders is not that any of us. I mean, if we've done anything for a while and accomplished anything, we've done all these at some level. But there's gaps, mm-hmm. and one of the things that we're hoping is that it will help go. Oh, there's a gap. We have these clients right now. They're new clients. They're growing at twenty to twenty-five percent a year, which is nothing to be shabby about. At and 25- they have
1: an amazing culture. Like they are passion and provision.
2: They didn't even Nth know. Degree. Yeah, they, they're they're, just, they're, We're going to count
1: them in our 10,000 companies, even though they came to us late in the game. Our
2: BHAG is to <laughs> help 10,000 companies. BHAG? Become, be a B, big, big, hairy, hairy audacious, audacious goal. goal Unless you're become,
1: obnoxious, in which case it's a big, hairy ass goal. But yeah. either way.
2: Yeah, a big... <laughs> I'm
1: obnoxious, so that's what it is for me. Sorry.
2: <laughs> yes. And so we want to help 10,000. I mean, we said, okay, Lord, what do we want? And we want 10,000 companies. And when we get to that, and we're willing to throw the next... You know, we're in our early 50s, and we're we're said, okay, this is what the Lord's called us to. We're willing to throw everything we have for the rest of our whatever into that. And, and into if re-
1: helping 10,000 companies develop passion and provision business models, essentially. Okay,
2: so here's the dirty secret. Yes. The dirty secret is we only half care about leaders. Okay, shh, don't tell anybody. And... Um, <laughs> because... What we care about even more is everybody who's got a job should be able to experience it. And it shouldn't be just the elitism of those of us that own companies. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't be saying, I get to do it and I'm going to do it on the backs of my people. Mm -hmm. And they're not going to be able to experience it. But I get to because I was the one who's smart enough to go start a job.
1: So if we have 10,000 passion provision companies, and even if they only had 10 workers a piece, We would be impacting 100,000 people who would then be impacting their communities because they'd be going home at night saying, I love my job. I feel so content in my job. And they're happy at home. And they're not taking out their work woes on their family, right? And if it turns out that we have 10,000 companies that employ 20 or 30 or 40 people or 150 people, how many lives and communities do we get to impact With the concept that work is not just that thing you have to do to make money.
2: So if we go after leaders, we get to help everybody else. Because
1: it trickles down.
2: And everybody wins. And quite frankly, those of us in the club of starting companies, it can be frustrating, confusing, lonely. And you're like, okay, where do we find community? Where do we be encouraged How do we find people who are going to, when we sit there and just go at the end of the day, even though we know tomorrow it's going to be another day and we're going to do it all again, right? You go, today sucked and I need to bitch a minute. I need to vent a minute. And I need somebody who's going to go, yeah, I get it. Advice is great. Wisdom is critical. But somebody who's informed and understands that you can just sit there and you go, and you know, like I can see it in all of your eyes as we're talking. You get it. You're like our tribe. (laughs) and the cigars are lovely, but it has nothing to do with the cigars at the moment. It's, you've been there, you've led, you've tried to accomplish something, and just being heard and understood is powerful for fighting loneliness Mm -hmm. and being able to restore yourself and get up the next day and go, okay, I can live to fight another day. That's just massive. And like, when that happens, I don't know if we've invented anything or come up with anything original, period. I think we've been taught, poured into, big borrowed and stole every piece of wisdom we've
1: got. Well, and the book is replete with, we learned this from this person and we learned this from this person. We didn't. There's no original, it's just the compiling of it into something that makes the unique wisdom, right? There's nothing original, it's just how you shape it. And we get to tell our story of our, our life. Yeah. So
2: we've got a couple of things that came from a couple of leaders. But one of them is you don't get to clarity alone. You don't get to clarity alone. That's powerful. How many of us try and do it on our own? Or feel like we're stuck and we have to do it on our own? Who do you call? What do you do? You know, the saying, you don't find your way until you see a way. You know, a leader, one of our leadership coaches poured that into us. And you go, yeah. And then you go, huh. I don't know. It's, I mean... When somebody sits down and listens to you and goes, yeah, that sucks. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. And more often than not, they don't have to solve it. You don't have to solve it. You just, that's restoring.
1: Well, we learned just recently that one of the things that's true about leaders is that the biggest thing they crave is just being listened to. So 80% of people who feel like really good about just interacting with another leader, it's not that they solved it. It's just you listen to me. Right.
2: Let's take you Steve.
1: Let's take you Steve. Let's take
2: you Steve. Five years ago, you were sitting at that table and you were kind enough to say that we made a positive impact on you Mm -hmm. and that there was value in those three days we were together. I didn't know why, but that didn't matter to you. Mm -mm. And hopefully part of it. Well, I don't know. Do you remember why? I mean I could apply anything I want I guess but
0: I was in a very very dark place emotionally because two months earlier my wife was rushed to the emergency room at CU Denver and Anschutz campus with heart failure congestive heart failure we had dealt with health issues throughout our marriage the autoimmune stuff that she had yeah. dealt with but all of a sudden this pulmonary hypertension came out of nowhere and nearly killed her she was in the hospital for a good three weeks, got out, and the day that she was diagnosed, the head of pulmonary at CU Denver came to me, world-renowned expert, came to me and pulled me aside. He said, Steve, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but there's a very real possibility that your wife won't be around to see your youngest graduate high school. And all of a sudden, all my dreams of... Living to past 90 with this woman and chasing her around the house in my 80s and 90s. And, (laughs) you know, just having this long life together, suddenly there's a very real chance. And everything was just on autopilot. I mean, I burned out of radio and media working for Dobson and I took that time off. And yeah, my first year as a financial advisor, I was killing it. But all of a sudden, nothing mattered except my wife. And I just went out to that conference in Reading and I was just like, one, because Andy Mason, who runs Heaven and Business, has become a really good friend. He invited me out. I ended up staying with Tim Janae, who ran Bethel Media, former CEO of Bethel Media. Stayed at his place. And I was just getting poured into for the first time since she went into that hospital. And I just loved our conversations. You said I didn't talk much. Well, I thought I did talk
2: a little bit. Well, you did. Not compared to now. <laughs> as life got on and got better, yeah, who you really are came out more. And it was clear, as we were talking, you were in pain. And it's funny how God does things because I remember listening to you and I remember trying to be encouraging and trying to be a, a good ear, but I had no idea that we'd become good friends and you'd be part of our story and we'd be part of yours and, and all of that. And so thank you. Thank you, but it's just those kind of things are like, you know, it's, it's super cool because, like, this is the first time we've talked about the book outside of the office. I mean, we're moving into the, this, you know, this is being recorded on the 9th of March, after um, my birthday. Sing, and Everybody we're just sing? like we we have like six weeks ahead of us of getting ready for a book launch, mm-hmm. and a lot of the stories we're going to tell aren't really going to be about overtly about Jesus. There's going to be a lot of places we're going to talk and podcasts we're going to be on and we're going to tell the stories. We're going to tell a lot of this stuff sans scriptural references.
0: The plain glass version, as my buddy John Ramstead likes to say. Well, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. You have a stained yeah. glass version and you have a plain glass version. Oh, I like that. I like. John's
2: just such a great guy. I love him. I just want to say thank you to, to those of you in the room yeah. for being willing to just be a part of this and listen to us and give us the grace of listening to us. But just be in here because we just love to talk about Jesus and what he's done in our life. And our hope is that the book leads to more and more conversations of setting people free and then saying, when they say, what is the answer for your hope? Then we say, well, this is the answer for our hope. This is how we got to this place. This is how we look at my grandparents and we say, You know, in many ways, that's the life we want to have. My mom and dad got a divorce. Her mom and dad got a divorce. A lot of pain. And we're breaking a lot of those things. We have a phenomenal relationship with our 24-year-old daughter, strangely enough, who swore she would never work for the company now works for the company.
1: (laughs) And by her request, and she choice. asked if
2: she could work for the company, which mm. was evil. You have a
1: space for me. Crazy. I really like it here. <laughs>
2: okay. You want to... I
0: mean, this was... This is a know. testament to who you guys are, because in all my interactions with, whether it be Ben or Jeannie or anyone in, in the Our office, staff. Yeah. I freaking love them. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. You have a great team. Oh, and you, and, 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 and that's the reason why I signed up for The Village, is because I've seen you guys, your marriage, your interaction with each other and also how you've built this culture. All right, they have a small business that's doing well, and I like their people, so they're doing it well. So I want to model right-turn media, you know, Mm. and take some of those lessons, and a lot of those lessons, really, and integrate them into
2: my company and my future companies. And may they be many, and may they be healthy, and may they thrive.
1: May there be profit permission. May your tribe
2: increase.
1: (laughs) May you have many quivers in your arrow.
0: (laughs) So we've mentioned the village. Sorry. This is an idea that was on your heart many years ago. Talk about that and the friend that encouraged you to move forward with it.
2: Which friend? So he's something about... Which story are you referring to? this is one idea that you keep going this back to. This is why you to. don't lie because stories show up and you can't remember all the stories.
1: <laughs> oh no, what story are we talking about?
2: Okay, which story? Cuz I'm like the friend that I've seen you talk
0: about a lot of different ideas. Yeah. But this is one you keep going back oh, to. Andrew.
1: Andrew, he's Who's our, our pastor. senior pastor. I'm his boss. I'm the board chair at our church, so I'm actually so his for boss. Four months so I feel late, good about that. More, his boss. For about 4 months like and to then I I too. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's um, real fun to be with So, as well. okay.
2: So, Andrew, we all went to the same high school together. He graduated two years behind me with my little sister. And
1: well, and he entered seminary as I was graduating. And he would say that he came into. He
2: still says to this he, day he still, it sucked.
1: To this day, he's like, I'm from her. Chico. Oh my gosh, you're following. I was Kathy Rhodes. Kathy Rhodes. And I had a reputation because I was the first, maybe the second female MDiv. Mm. at Biola at Talbot University so you know I came in and, and she had one
2: A minus the rest of them were solid A's yeah. she missed like the cum laude or whatever it was yeah. at, in her master's program there was some kid in front of her who didn't get an A minus I didn't like him
1: but he <laughs> it turned out he wasn't a good preacher but he got magna whatever he, they, as it turned out he sucked she's in not preaching bitter. and, and I'm, she's not I'm a good preacher me. so I was sad about that but never mind I'm over it almost. okay
2: my wife kills as a preacher <laughs> just saying my life kills as a preacher. So So Andrew. Okay, so Andrew, Andrew said before we started Half a Bubble Out, this one's gonna last. Uh, he okay, and I mowed lawns in, in college. Together. And you have to
1: understand that Michael and I had this like thing where I would say to him, Baby, you cannot make I got to a point where I was like you cannot make one more business card until it means something. Because I am done with Redmond Real Estate and Redmond blah 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 and whatever. There was like multiple versions, and because he's an entrepreneur, but none of them meant anything. They didn't stick.
2: They were practicing. I was angry. She came from a non-entrepreneurial environment, and she didn't understand the value. Did I say reluctant entrepreneur?
1: I might have Mm -hmm. said a reluctant entrepreneur. You said that there was a lot
2: of education that he didn't have. Anyway, (laughs) so Andrew said at a uh, an Applebee's one day uh, before the company started, he says, "I think this one's going to last." Like, I think this vision you have, this dream you have is going to come. And I said, why do you think that? And he said, because you haven't been able to stop talking about it. Because he'd seen me jump around. I mean, I got a million ideas. One of our clients said, you know, I have machine gun ideas. And part of being in our conference room is we help sort through the machine gun ideas. Which ones are good and which ones aren't. He said it was like
1: business counseling.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I totally get it. But in 2010, we happened to be Bethel again. And we were at the prophetic conference with some friends and God gave me a vision of the village. And the village was this idea of in the vision, it actually was a small village with buildings and streets and intersections and stuff like that, that we built that had all of these companies, these leaders that could actually rent space in the village. And when you rented space in the village for your company, It came with coaching and business consulting. And the team of people we had around it were all these experts in all these key areas that turned out to be the six key areas where not only were they, they were part of the team that could consult and work with you, but they coached you and then we coached your staff and we helped equip you. And they all knew the language, the common value language of passion and provision, which we hadn't articulated quite clearly yet. And so I remember coming back from Bethel and we were taking a walk and we said this what if we could build this place? And over time the short answer was it was going to cost about 50 million to build it the way we wanted to. And we didn't and have that a, was
1: in 2010 so I don't know. We didn't
2: have a cool but 50 anyone million, has around. million now. <laughs> Nor did we know anybody who had a cool 50 million that wanted to give it to us. So what we did was we said okay Lord we'd learned sometimes visions from the Lord take a while. And we just started praying into it, and we said, "Okay, we'll just do everything we can to live into what we have." And a friend of ours, who had a lot of business experience, everything else, he was getting his MBA. And he said, "I want to work with you to put something together about Habo Village, as like a business plan, as my master's." Thesis. And Habo is
1: half a bubble out. Half a bubble out. A B O. our And the
2: yeah. guy, H-A-B-O. the guy who
1: decided to help us put this together, was getting his MBA. Was the president of the software company that I worked for. To put him through school. And a strong believer. And a strong believer. His name is Aaron. He's a great guy. So he said
2: that day, he goes, well, I love the idea of a community of people that I could network with that had shared values and purpose. I love the idea of being able to reach out if you could put a community like that together. And he said, well, what if we put it online and you just built it virtual first and built backwards into it? And we went, oh, well, we didn't have to come up with cash. So we just started a slow process and with the great recession and everything else, we just took our time and then we started doing it and we started working on the book and then we built the course and then because we live where paradise is and paradise burned down at the end of 18 and in 24 hours, we lost 14,000 plus homes. It kind of sent our county into a, a massive shock.
1: That was, that was right after we'd launched the first iteration of the course. Yes. And 80% of our people were local. So as it turned out, they stopped caring. I don't know. What if when when the book, so we literally so the mastering leadership book that we just sent Did you to
0: get you. That yet? No, I still haven't got it. Okay. So whatever.
1: Mastering leadership is a book that we send out as part of the course. And one of our guys who'd signed up was like, um, yeah, lost it in the fire in my entire house. Okay. House so it's okay that you don't care anymore. I get it. We'll, uh, we'll get you a new book.
2: We've all been through tragedy, right? When you go through tragedy... We've
0: been through two massive fires, Waldo Canyon and then Black Forest. So there's there's a point at which it's incredibly
2: painful and it's horrible, but sometimes when you go through tragedy in your life, you deal with it with humor. A lot of people in Butte County do a lot of humor right now around fire. And then every once in a while, somebody goes, too soon. (laughs) But it was tragic and horrible, and there's still all these people that are displaced. And so it kind of just threw everything. So we went back and said, okay, let's write the book and let's move forward and build a membership site. And it all kind of has worked out timing-wise really well. And so now the book's coming out and the course is built and there's a lot more stability in the whole process. And it's really, it's just good. God's timing is good. It's God's timing. And you just kind of like, he knows what's coming. And he knows how he's going to help you navigate around it if you'll just persevere and exhibit some grit.
0: So in the book and the course, you go through vision, leadership, two parts, management and operations.
2: Are you looking at your curriculum? I am.
1: (laughs) Marketing and sales.
0: Marketing and sales, part one and two. Mm -hmm. Finance.
1: Finance.
0: And culture. Culture. The finance one was a big hole for me. And I'm looking forward to digging into that one once we get to that as a class. But talk about that. I mean that, so that's finance that's part? something that you guys have grown and in oh. the book you talk uh, you talk at length about
1: Yeah. How- well, and it is finance 101. I mean, we're not pretending that, I mean, if somebody understands finance, this is not, you know, the chapter, the course, whatever. We are not CPAs. We say
2: all this because we're waiting waiting for people to go, that's uh, stupid. That's not that intelligent. We're like, we we know, caveat, because
1: we're we're waiting for the... Most small business owners are scared of their reports. They're just scared. They don't know how to read reports. They don't know what to do with their CPA. They don't actually look at their stuff until tax time. We're like, whoop. So all they care about is, do I have enough money in the bank today? Never minding if all of that is allocated to something, (laughs) which means you're not going to be able to make payroll in three weeks, right? So there's all of that stuff that goes on. And so the finance chapter really is about what does it look like to learn, to understand and read just the basic reports? So if you're going to run a business, you better have minimum competency so that you can read your income statement, your balance sheet, a cash flow projection, and your ARAP. So it's very basic. It's not, it's not high end, but it really is about not being scared of the numbers.
0: It's talking to dudes like me who have the idea or we have the expertise within a certain area, but I never learned this in college. I don't want to read any big accounting books. And who do you and- hang
2: out with? That actually understands it and you sit around and go smoke your cigar and have a conversation about your balance sheet and your income statement.
0: I have yet to have that conversation at a Holy Smokes. Right?
2: Right? And yet, how important is it Mm -hmm. to be encouraged and mentored in that place? And even for
1: someone like you, how do you break up your revenue streams? So you understand, okay, you have a revenue stream for your podcast work. You're building a revenue stream for video production right? Audiobooks. You're going to be building that. You yep. have a revenue stream for audiobooks. books. How do you understand the ratios of those revenue streams versus the cost of goods to deliver those services? And what actually can you leverage well to grow your business? And what
2: kind of margin should you expect?
1: Right? So we what would say, should you have, you know, you look back at our business and okay, here we, go. we had <laughs> massive growth, but it was on a 15% profit margin. So, okay. How many times do I want to spend a hundred dollars and make 15, and make 115? Well, I want to do that a lot. But if I can charge $100 and keep 90 of it, I want to leverage that one, (laughs) right? Not the 15%. I want to leverage the 90% profit margin. So how do you even begin to break up your chart of accounts so that you're understanding there are multiple revenue streams in this business, and there are different cogs against that revenue stream? What is making me the most money, and what do I leverage? And you think that's really basic, But there are large companies that aren't paying attention to this. So we're consulting with a company and they're like, we need you to grow this. And we're looking at their stuff and we had them pie chart it. And it turned out that the thing they wanted us to grow.
2: So this was an $8 million company. $8 million
1: company. The thing they want us to grow is 5% of their business. And the thing that they're not asking us to pay attention to is 80% of their business. And And we're like, and it's not growing. What are you doing?
2: But they were like, they were so convinced and they sat there and they went, oh, that's not to shame them.
1: Not at all. It's and just... while,
2: while we feel bad sometimes because it, it's like, well, this is simple. When you start throwing the terms around and ratios around and all that stuff that are some of the basic vocabulary, it's very intimidating because you don't know. And I don't care how smart you are, how big your organization is. If somebody starts throwing crap around that you don't know and starts to sound like they're trying to sound smart and they're trying to make you feel dumb, or you feel dumb, and you sift the subject. You don't usually go, you know what? I run a significant organization, but I don't fully understand that. Could you educate me a little bit? And so what we're trying to do is go, yeah, we all struggle with it, especially, Michael Gerber, who wrote E-Myth said, that most of us who start businesses start them because we have an entrepreneurial seizure. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. All of a sudden we're like, "I I can just imagine this seizure going on, and you're going, I can do I can this and no problem. I know, I, how got to, this. I know how to make a widget. I can run a business and get customers and I can do all that. I'll just go, I'll quit my good job and I'll go start a company and I'll leverage everything. And then 80% of businesses fail. So the finance part's really cool because we struggled probably the most with it. We got no financial education from our parents at all. We did stupid things. We put ourselves in stupid positions. And I mean, even when everything fell apart, we made poor decisions, even when we had a lot of cash in the bank. Now, some people would say the cash we had was not a lot because they have a lot more commas and zeros in their world. But, but it was a lot relative. to us.
1: And I think you know, part of what and we do make in the book is totally. there's an emotional relationship to money, right? So we all grow up with... So I have my best friend, is she grew up in Atherton. We'll call it Atherton. Atherton. So she would basically say money grows on trees, like it's no big deal. After like if there's no the money, we go find money. Silicon like,
2: Valley people, people have money buy houses.
1: So all I have to do if there's no money is just go find money. And her husband grew up with parents who didn't manage money well, ultimately went bankrupt. So he comes from way more of a poverty spirit. So you've got these competing things, right? Well, I definitely grew up with a poverty spirit. Grew up with paycheck to paycheck. My dad was a nurse. He made great money, but he they never owned he never owned a home.
2: Because he he was
1: afraid to own a home. And so there was never any assets, right? I will inherit nothing because there was no assets, even though he made a really good living. So we all have an emotional relationship to money. So how do you navigate that even as you're managing your people, right? So you may hire a team, but if your CFO has an emotional relationship to money that it's absolutely risk averse and you're an entrepreneur, how do you manage that or adjust that? How do you deal with being risk averse if you need to be, so we've dealt with it in our relationship because I tend to be a bit risk averse. So Michael goes, we need to invest in that $25,000 program. And I'm like, no, we don't. And he's like, oh, but look what it will leverage. And I'm like, oh no, because I'm watching the money and he's watching the potential. And so just the emotional dynamic of understanding how you even interact with business partners, whether you're married, which is a unique dynamic, or whether, you're, with you? or whether you're just, <laughs> or whether your business partner is more risk averse or you're more entrepreneurial, right? There's all of this emotional stuff around money that we don't want to talk about. And we want to believe if I'm a leader, I got this. And sometimes
2: she's right and I'm wrong. And sometimes I'm right and she's wrong. So it's not even black and white. No, And so part of the relationship is navigating it.
1: Well, and some of it is when he has had us take risks and they haven't worked and they've failed. How do I recover so that I don't believe that every risk that we take is going to end in failure. Right? So it's an interesting thing. Just navigating finances. We, I mean, we have a number of couples that we work with actually who are in business and how do they navigate together those different emotional relationships and the fear that comes around money. And how do we ultimately learn to trust Jesus with money, right? Even if our journey doesn't look like the thing that the conservative financial analyst would want anyone to model, because the journey of the entrepreneur typically doesn't fit what the conservative financial, we have financial clients and I'm like, I am not talking to you. I mean, I will advertise you, I'll help you grow your business, but I am not telling you about my books. Because I'm thinking, my God, they're not gonna love the risk that we take. Because it happens to be more extreme than maybe other people would be willing to do. And there's risk. So all of that stuff too in the money thing is really critical.
0: Well, one thing at lunch today, the three of us and then my wife Elizabeth joined, you talked about those investments within some communities have really paid dividends multiple times over. So that $25,000 investment, say with digital marketing.
1: Yeah, digital marketer. Digital yep. marketer yep.
0: has paid off tremendously for you guys. But
1: here's the thing, Steve. If you were to ask me to draw a direct line for those of you listening, from the investment
2: and she's <laughs> to out. the
1: result, I'd be like, that's a hard line to draw. And here's the thing most of the time, you want to be able to draw a direct investment. We deal with this in marketing all the time. I want to spend this many dollars and I want you to tell me exactly what I'm going to gain. And you know what? Sometimes it's not a direct line. Sometimes that investment results in a business five years later that was radically transformative, but is really hard to tie back. So, you know, even in that, there's the argument of, okay, but was that actually because of that? Or was it just because that would have come up even if we hadn't? Right? So depending on how conservative you are, but I would say that most of the time, I've learned to trust Michael that when we invest in something, it's going to yield something much more valuable. We
2: try and be prayerful, and we try and be wise. Mm -hmm. I read Proverbs Often, because there's so much wisdom there, and there's so much wisdom for running a business. I mean, it's like a textbook in itself. So, we're back in Colorado Springs, where we pastored in our 20s, and we are now in our 50s. Our friends that we're staying with go to a small church, a different church in the southwest on Cheyenne Mountain. And, well, first of all, we got to have coffee with one of our kids this morning, who's a mom of three kids. Who loves Jesus and is pursuing Christ. But they all told us that there's this kid, no, they're not this kid, this 30 something with three kids and a wife, who was one of our goofiest kids in our youth group. And he teaches Sunday school and they're regular attenders and they're regularly involved and they're they're pouring into others. And if I had to list all of our kids in our youth group over the years, he was one of the ones that was never going to end up doing any of this. And I didn't know if he'd ever end up following Jesus. Least likely to succeed. (laughs) Okay. So what's the parallel? We invested our life into this kid and the other kids with it with no understanding of what the return on investment was. Mm -hmm. And now there are kids in Sunday school that are reaping the investment that we made. Other people made it too in him or he wouldn't be here. But we poured into this kid for three and a half years deeply with kind of a broken family home and a lot of turmoil. And I know from talking to many of our kids over the last couple of years that are now parents what that's like. So you start to learn what's the risk. Finance is a lot like people. I don't have that fully worked out yet. So I don't have an eloquent way of explaining that. But you invest in things all the time. Your time is the most valuable. Cash is down the line on things that are valuable because cash can be replaced. Your time can't be replaced. Yeah. And when you pour into other people and you just go, okay, am I pouring myself out? In Philippians chapter two or three, the apostle Paul talks about, I poured myself out as a drink offering. One of my favorite books in the Bible when I start looking at that kind of stuff. And Paul has just come through a period where he's talking about all these aspects of who he is and how you have this self-image, but it's really what you do for Christ. And you pour yourself out as a drink offering, hoping on the altar. It's a reference to the Old Testament when the priests would pour out the wine on and it would just kind of steam up because it was the hot altar and the, the holy barbecue, as I call it. And... Um, holy
1: smokes, Batman.
2: And you go, I don't know if what I'm doing, I hope it's a fragrance good to the Lord. But it's gone. It turns into a vapor. And you don't know. And our time is like that. I think running a business and investments, you're trying to assess the best you can prayerfully with wisdom, with experience, in a community of counsel, not alone, which too many entrepreneurs do. Is this a good investment or not? And sometimes you pour into a kid who you think might be a lost clause and who definitely doesn't listen when you're teaching the Bible study or anything else. and is a dork on the, in the back. And then they turn into a dad. Sometimes you pour into a kid or a person or a job and they turn out to be like one of our other kids who ended up a drug addict and in prison and fell apart. And he went in and out of prison so much, and his body's so full of tattoos and swastikas and everything else, and it breaks my heart. And I loved that kid, but he never could pull it out. What do I trade? The investment I had in him, we had in him, or the investment we had in the kid who's a dad? Sometimes the investments, you don't know when they're gonna pay off, and you don't know how they're gonna work out in the kingdom. Business is kinda like that, and it's important to remember that the short term, where it doesn't look good, like, I don't want to give up hope on the other kid. Business is, it gets messy, I being Jesus followers and doing business. And I don't want to over-spiritualize business and like, I made that investment in that property and God told me to spend the cash and oh, leveraged everything I owned. And that's stupid. And I've been stupid. <laughs> but I do believe that everything we do, God invented this world and he invented commerce and he invented all that stuff. So... How do we as followers of Christ really seriously look at work? Because the church for a long time, and thank God the body of Christ in America is starting to shift, looked at business as a means to pay for ministry. But the work you did 40, 50, 60 hours a week was not ministry in itself. But that
0: shift is happening.
2: I think it definitely has been over the last 20 years. And I'm terribly grateful for it. And we still have some room to grow, but... The fact that we're even having that conversation and people aren't poo-pooing it anymore is a great move forward for the body of Christ. So the village is really like, okay, the village is this place where we're saying, how do we continue to take the wisdom of God? How do we teach this in business? And we talk about business being a ministry. And if it means we start out in the basics with the clear glass, is you what did the you add? Glass. The, the stained
0: glass. Glass, stain glass and First, plain glass. Plain
2: glass. And then we go... In the book, we talk about one of the places that was really profound is in Catherine's hometown of York, England. It has the second largest Gothic cathedral in all of Europe, only second to Notre Dame in Paris. It has the largest collection of stained glass in all of Europe. and It's a walled city. And in World War II, they took all the stained glass out of the church and they hid it in these little catacombs these little places in the wall, so that if Hitler came across because he was bombing that far north, it wouldn't destroy the church in the stained glass. You know, the stained glass image is, is for us, is like it just so happens to be really powerful because when you walk into that cathedral today and you watch the sun coming in from that direction, and you can see the stories of Scripture and our Lord and all that stuff portrayed in these pictures, in these stained glass, and the apostles and the saints, and the journey, and you go at some point hopefully the village is a place where people are learning those things and at some point what they thought was clear glass they start to realize the beauty of the stained glass and we get to show them the stories piece by piece story by story of what it means that all of this done well actually is part of a healthy relationship with god and you don't get confused between God and his people and you have grace and there's healing and the people that have screwed you over you can actually you don't have to be in bondage to that kind of pain and you can see fruit because in passion and provision the provision is for all of your needs for today as Jesus says in once the first time in Matthew 6 father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's all in that prayer. And lead us not into temptation. Or help us not to be stupid and get too close to things that we shouldn't get close to. And if we forgive and we walk in those things, we have that provision for today. But we also believe that in John, when you see it throughout Scripture... God wants to give you an abundance, an overflowing, as Paul said. And that's not only provision for today's needs, but to build for dreams for tomorrow. And I, and I think it's the dreams he gives us. And as entrepreneurs, we've been called to a unique place in the body of Christ to build businesses and to provide for a lot of people that gets a lot, of, a lot of cool things can happen through that.
0: So if this is resonating with someone, go to habovillage.com.
2: And get on the email list. Put get your on the email
0: there. list. And I'm hoping, I didn't ask you before, but I'm hoping that you guys will give some kind of discount to Holy Smokers in 2020 the next time that the village opens up.
2: So that's important to say. We only open up the village. The plan is to only open up the course in the village a couple of times a year. Right now that's, it's been once a year. And we will do that. Is that okay to do?
1: Hashtag Holy Smokes.
2: Oh, that's good. I like that's that.
1: That's the coupon code, right? Hashtag Holy Smokes. Yeah, it's not when we'll it comes it when out. it comes open,
2: and, up, 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 and we'll up. post in the group that there, it's coming. Yeah. If that's not too self-serving, um, yeah, absolutely. We'll figure something out and and figure that out. And no, we'll leave it at that. I've, all of a sudden, I've got machine gun ideas coming. <laughs> to me. You have other
0: courses that you plan on releasing. What are some of the ones that you're thinking about doing in the future Catherine? within the village?
2: Well, we're doing mini ones. Yeah. Okay.
1: So, but part of it is that right now we have kind of the business 101 stuff, but it's really for those that sign up and join the membership, what does it look like to go deeper? So, developing additional courses on leadership and additional courses on marketing. Sales and marketing. Yeah. And... Just additional deeper level. We've got courses. some awesome
2: stuff in leadership coming that's going to be just, I mean, the toolbox for that, we're just, we can't wait to start unleashing some of those. But the newest one that just got kind of, Brought up this weekend, literally, is on preparing leaders for grief. Mm. And our friends that we're staying with have been doing eight years of a course on grieving when you lose people you love through death, all kinds of different things, from suicide, accidents, all kinds of stuff. And it, it became really, really clear that if we're going to be prepared as leaders, we have to understand some really core things on grief, and a lot of us haven't been trained well intentionally on how to handle grief and how to help our people that we're leading handle grief. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to create this. I think we, we have to set the timing. We don't know exactly when it's going to happen, but that will be one of the smaller ones that we do that will be available separately as a separate purchase, but it will be involved in anybody who's part of the village that is, first of all, an intellectual three or four part training on the really important things you need to know for yourself and for others to help him. And then a deeper resource so that you're set up because one of the things that's tricky about grief that many of us know is it's one thing to have an intellectual understanding, but until you hit it and hit it hard, it's really hard to fully process it. So we want people to not be surprised so that there's a resource that they can go to when it happens. And there's some preparing for leaders so that when somebody in their company happens, for instance, you know, one of the people on our staff eight years ago lost their brother to suicide. Mm. Her mother took it really hard. And about six years ago, we were, I was sitting in my office and her office is next to mine. And all of a sudden I just, the phone rang, hello. And then she screamed. Mm. And she got the phone call that her mother committed suicide because she couldn't handle it. Mm -hmm. And you're in that moment with your people and you're like, okay, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Now, how do I shepherd well? How do I care for this person? What do we do as an employer? What do we do at the moment? What do we do over the days, the weeks? And quite frankly, the years when they unpack. And if you care about people and you lead people at all, this stuff happens. People's homes burn up and they are homeless. What do you do? People lose people suddenly. What do you do? So it's like those kind of things. I go, we were having a beer and I was eating this amazing BLT in South Colorado Springs. It was amazing. The bacon was awesome. And at Bristol Brewery, if you're ever in Colorado Springs, it's an amazing brewery.
1: In the old Ivy Wild School. Very cool. Yeah, just
2: a little perk there. And uh, X
0: and Oak, the distillery is owned by a holy smoker.
1: Oh, and
2: we, fantastic. we have, we have many events fantastic.
0: outside of there during the summer,
2: but we're sitting there in a great place, having a pint and a double IPA. And they start talking about this thing they've done for eight years, seven years teaching people because they led into it because her father was bicycling across the country in his sixties and out in the middle of the California desert, a drunk driver hit them in the middle of the night and killed him. And in the
1: middle of Joshua Tree.
2: She, in the middle of Joshua Tree. And she went through this grieving process. And part of what God called them to do is in their healing process was to get this amazing curriculum that they found that's national. It's faith-based. And to start holding two times a year this 12-week course. and And anybody's invited, faith or not, and they've had all kinds of people. And they've had some people who who can't understand how God would let something like this happen in their life and they've poured out of their pain and their healing and into other people and I'm sitting there going this is genius stuff Lord this is like who teaches business leaders grief counseling you don't have to be the counselor but how do you facilitate a culture that allows for healing and pain so that your people go and that shouldn't be just the domain of church
0: Mm. that should be
2: the domain of business also
0: com. Come on. <laughs> you got a podcast. You're just about to hit 100 episodes. In fact, in fact, by the time... We recorded time, 100. So by the time that yeah. this releases, that 100th episode will be in the feed. Have you listened I, to it yet? No, I haven't yet.
1: It's, it's dang you know. funny. No, you're going to my, laugh. My,
0: my, my team hasn't put it in the you private are gonna, feed you're yet. You're going to laugh. Sorry. I'm like right. this
2: great moment you were building up to and I'm... I'm...
0: hobblevillage.com. Dot com. And the book? <laughs> Fulfillthebook.com.
1: Fulfillthebook.com. Building that website? Yep. Well, by the time this the releases, time this airs, it will be it built. It will be
2: out. It will be on Amazon. It will be on barnesandnoble.com. But go to Amazon, buy it, buy the Kindle first.
1: Yeah, and
2: gonna, don't forget the audiobook. Don't forget the audiobook because Steve Scheduled is. Scheduled by Steve's yours truly. Yes. Very
1: yes. mastery.
2: On audible.com. I always wanted a book on audible.com. Read by the I Jewish. dreamed of having a book on audible.com. And now we're going to be on audible.com. Michael and Catherine Redmond.
0: Thanks for being on. Let's Thank get to rapid so much fire questions.
1: Rapid fire,
2: go. Well, rapid fire. Oof. <laughs>
0: Hey everyone, before we get to the rapid fire segment, I wanted to reshare a note that Kay and I got from an 80-year-old listener that lives in Southeast Kansas and still works in his small town family business. He told us, I really lack male friendships because so many of my friends have passed the last few years. So I would value a group of men to spend time with. I'm learning some valuable lessons through the podcast and wish I was 30 rather than 80. I plan to stay tuned for more interviews. May God bless you and your group in 2020 he also talked about how he wrestled with the concept of men and women partaking in fine tobacco and drink because of the church and denomination he grew up in but the podcast is changing that. when i showed this decay at his house recently we both started tearing up this is my why for doing this show so if that moved you would you consider partnering with us Okay. And I want to develop the website to better facilitate groups. We want to travel and get your stories for the podcast. We want to get back to doing two episodes a week, but we need your help. There are two simple ways you can help us out. Become a regular supporter at patreon.com slash holy That's patreon.com for as little as $5 a month. You can get early access to episodes, ad free versions of the podcast, free swag, like a holy smokes t-shirt and more. That's patreon.com slash holy smokes. You can also make a one-time tax-deductible donation at paypal.me slash holy smokes club. And both of those links are in the show notes. Thanks. Rapid fire. (laughs) Fire. (laughs) All right, how's that stick treating you? I
2: love this one. It's been—I feel like Marshall. it nursed it a long time, but it's really good. The Daniel Marshall Red Label. Daniel Marshall Red Label. I got it. Can I order these somewhere? Yes, you can go to Danielmarshall.com
0: or Daniel Marshall Cigars. Just Google Daniel Marshall Cigars; it'll take you to the website. Daniel Marshall. Daniel Marshall Red Label. When did you first try cigars?
1: I remember smoking a cigar walking across Chico State's campus when I was 20 years old. With a girlfriend. Catherine. Went to the local smoke shop, bought a cigar, decided we were just going to go for it, and walked the campus with the cigar feeling very grown up.
2: <laughs> I was in and high school. i about once a year since. I was in high school <laughs> with Chris Payne and Ronnie Graves and Tom Jones. Not. The oh, famous, I had a crush on Tom, famous Tom famous Jones friend. when I was Tom in high Jones. school. Tom Jones, and I smoked a Swisher Sweet. And I thought, if this is cigars, I don't ever want to do it again.
1: Totally fair. Yep.
2: But they told me it was a cigar, so that's I went okay. And I
1: went to the Bidwell Cigar Shop and got a real one. Uh, that's smarter than you. They wouldn't let me buy one day. at sixteen
2: years old. I am definitely redeemed by Jesus for sure. <laughs> How often do you smoke, Michael?
0: Catherine said once a year. Yeah, pro-
2: it's probably once a year for us. It's not often.
0: Now that you're in Holy Smokes, and I added you to the group, I want to say either the end of last year or the very beginning of this year, yes, 2020, sir. I can see cigars becoming a semi-regular thing. I,
2: I can. Yeah.
1: It's- as long as our company this group, by really this, yes. good whiskey. With this group of people? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Every day, if it's with this group of people.
2: I'd hang out with them every day. I wouldn't smoke a cigar.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Favorite liquid pairing with your smoke?
1: I would say, I, I don't have it right now, but I would think it would be Lagavulin, because oh. it's a smoky
2: You know, whiskey. I like, Lagavulin's a nice choice. Mm. So, whiskey scotch, or Irish whiskey. What's the one in the box that we drink, the Irish one?
1: Are you talking about the high-end Jameson? Yeah. Middleton. Middleton.
2: I, that's it. I forget the name often, but Middleton Irish whiskey, it comes from Cork, England. It's lovely. And no, it comes, it, in a, it comes from oh course, Ireland, Ireland, not England. And it's lovely. It comes in a wooden box and it's numbered. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Favorite food. That's hard. <laughs> Favorite food?
1: Yeah. Well, it was my birthday yesterday and we went out for fish and chips and a pint. But that'd be my British roots, right? Yeah. Fish and chips, good malt vinegar. That's pretty up there for me.
2: Most dead cow. Mm-hmm. I love a good steak. And then I like a good tiramisu afterwards.
0: Dogs, cats,
2: neither or both? Dogs
0: Dogs. only. Every day,
1: all day, no cats. No cats. Traumatized by cats as a child. No cats.
0: Nickname growing up or in college?
1: Joe. Joe? Joe? I've never heard this. Yeah, I had a really good girlfriend and she was Jerry and I was Joe. We nicknamed each other. That was Nicole Garcia. It wasn't. It Joe, was huh? junior high high school. Things you Joe. learned about your wife.
2: There you go. They just called me by either red man, red woman, red something. It was there were several that there were a litany that seemed to be red something. Because our my last, last name's name, Redman.
1: Well, yeah. my last name was Rhodes, so the standing joke was Country Rhodes, take me home. Kathy Rhodes, take me home.
0: Rude. What's one unusual fact? <laughs> <laughs>
1: that was unusual. What? That was what? it?
0: What's one unusual fact that few people know about you?
2: And What about you?
1: I have read every Jack Reacher novel in the Lee Child series. That's your fact? Nobody knows that. They think I'm a really deep and like profound and stuff. And I'm like, you think I just they think you're I deep read and profound. well, I think they think that. But I read Jack <laughs> Reacher when I'm bored. I just want the guy who's like really big and mean and it's gonna take out all the bad people and have no repercussions. It makes me happy. What okay, what do you think?
2: the thing is that nobody knows about me because
1: well I don't know because I'm somebody and if I don't know it then how what can do you think I know it's
2: rare that people know about me though I kind of talk a lot if you haven't noticed yes so there's very few things people don't know about me
1: he has more that words works. than I do how's I'm that I'm sorry for... I don't
2: have I don't have anything for that one that's a good one that's a good question
0: more words in a
2: day than your wife
1: so that's... many more <laughs> we're talking by multiples Multi- multiple I got line
2: three times they say
0: you're both big readers. Mm-hmm. Three favorite books:
2: Speed of Trust. We're not going to talk about the Bible, right? Yeah, no Bible. Tale of Three Kings. Okay, that's come up a few times. Yeah, yeah it's sure. huge. Amazing we book talked book. about it just in class recently, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Tale of Three Kings, an amazing book on grace.
1: Is this him than me, or can we just like cross over and chat? Oh no, go ahead. What's your? You get three. So I was just sharing with John Disappointment with God by Philip Yancey. Oh yeah, one of my favorite all-time books. So I'm actually reading a book now called Necessary Endings by Henry Cloud. Cloud. Yeah, it's amazing on when you know that it's time to end something, whether it's mm-hmm. a project, a business, an employee relationship, whatever, but phenomenal book.
2: Yeah. Um, what's so amazing about Grace? Yancy. Mm. By Yancey also. So what's so amazing about Grace, Tale of Three Kings, Speed of Trust, mm-hmm. I think would be, Right now at the top of the list.
1: And I also would, for anyone who's just struggling with trying to figure out how to position things, I think, who wrote A Thousand Gifts? What's her name? There's a book called A Thousand Gifts, and it really is about positioning gratitude in the tiny little details of life, and it definitely repositioned me in 2012. It was really helpful.
2: Remember on that book that it's through praise and thanksgiving you enter into the courts of the Lord. Yeah.
1: Mm. Eucharist Eucharist
0: all right last two questions
2: yeah okay
0: if you were to have a holy smoke with any three people throughout history
2: oh,
0: yes. living or deceased okay who would they be can't name Jesus
2: mm-hmm. Winston Churchill's my first like totally first he of all up he comes up often does up. it yeah he comes up very often oh, darn lot. it I was hoping you wanted to
1: be special didn't you I did sorry
2: I have a deep desire to <laughs> be special have, <laughs> <laughs> you, have, you, have, you have two more chances to
1: be you. special Michael yeah. I would really love living still, barely, but I would choose to sit down with the Queen of England, the existing not-quite-yet-dead queen. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. What was the guy that, in England, and I blinked on his name, but the movie Amazing Grace when he was... A William Wilberforce? William Wilberforce. Wilberforce. Yeah, I'd like... I don't think he would smoke or drink with me, but... Because he... Maybe. I would he like to sit with... Wil, I think Wilberforce would be interesting to mm-hmm. sit down with. The
0: first Wilberforce, so that makes you special.
2: Oh, good.
1: <laughs> I, I've got a real special one because no one else is going to have this one. I would love 15 more minutes with my dad.
2: Mm. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. He'd like smoke a cigar with
1: you. He would do anything bad with me. But I would love just... Yeah, he died a little suddenly and there's just some questions I would like to ask him that I never got to. So, definitely my dad.
2: And my great-grandfather who died when my hero grandfather was 18. He Mm. died of black lung disease working in the mill on the coast of Oregon. And the way Grandpa talked about him, he didn't have him around a lot, but I think that would be really interesting to sit down with him and talk with him, especially the fact that he he raised my hero.
1: Mm.
2: Mm. That'd be good. I got enough time with Grandpa. He's with Jesus. He doesn't need to come back.
1: I'm not even sure who my third would be. I think there's like a litany of people that are going through my head, but I've always been curious about people who were just martyred for the faith. So, oh, yeah. I'd be really curious to talk with somebody like Joan of Arc. Just be like, "Okay, who were you actually uh, behind all that?" But she and, probably uh, would well, too many jokes available when you said that. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but yes, Joan of Arc. <laughs>
2: maybe she came back she wouldn't she'd be averse to oh, smoking right.
1: she smoked at the end poor thing yeah. sorry smoking. Oh. <laughs> she's smoking high want not have a good ah. smoking hot Jennifer
0: alright last question yes sir she's hot if we're to eat <laughs> if, right? if we were to meet one year from today yes and I got a bottle of champagne yes or that Irish whiskey that you just talked about yes sir what are we celebrating
2: we're celebrating the first thousand leaders who came across and Provision and found some freedom that Jesus brought them.
1: Yeah. And we're absolutely celebrating them, which would also make our staff celebrate, because when we get to a thousand members in the village, we've said we're taking them all to Disneyland. So they're all about the thousand. Work. We promised them. <laughs> they're like, can we count that guy? Can we count that guy? We just need to know, can we count him? Because they're counting. Because You're one of them. Yeah.
2: You're one of the ones. Because it's all about
1: going to Disneyland.
0: Michael and Catherine Redmond. Holy smokers, I can tell you right now. I love these two people. Mm. And they are extra special in my heart. And so I highly recommend check out The Village. Hopovillage.com. Get on the email list. Sign up. Become a villager. Not a village people. But a villager.
1: No YMCA dances. I'm not having it.
0: Check it out. Listen to the podcast. Buy the book. I am a fan. And you guys are awesome. I love you. And uh, thanks for being on the Holy Smokes Podcast.
2: Thanks for having too. us, Steve. Thank you very much.